We would like to offer our respects to the traditional elders of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created, including the Kamaregal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to extend that respect and recognition to all First Nations listeners. How well do you think you know someone? Perhaps your initial impressions are all wrong. What if their real stories are more interesting, more amazing and more surprising than you ever expected? This is Let Me Tell You from SBS Voices. I'm Sarah Malik. And I'm Caitlin Chang. And we are your hosts as we hear the unexpected stories behind ordinary people's lives. All of these stories were originally written for SBS Voices, Australia's home of diverse storytelling. But we thought they were so good they deserve to be spoken out loud. So, Sarah, are you someone who takes your supermarket trolley back to the trolley bay or do you leave it slowly rolling away next to your car? Okay, I feel like I'm being put on the spot here. I think I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. Okay, you don't have to answer that. But who goes and collects the rogue trolleys around the streets? Have you ever noticed the people who are pushing those huge stacks of trolleys around the car park? You're actually about to meet one who has a surprising story to tell. Yes, indeed. So today we hear from writer Benjamin Muir, who reminds us that first impressions can sometimes be deceiving. This story is being read by Joshua Jonathan of the Parramatta Actors Centre. But make sure you keep listening after the story where we talk to Benjamin himself. So here is I'm a writer, an academic and a trolley boy. It's just shy of 11pm. I'm pulling up to a party in the inner west of Sydney. I'm in the instantly recognisable Technicolor uniform of one of two major national grocery store chains. I'll let you flip a coin and guess, but I've worked for both companies at different points. I've worked for one of them twice. I douse myself in deodorant. I didn't have time to change. I don't particularly want to be here. I like the host and even a lot of his friends. I've just been pushing trolleys and cleaning bakeries, delis, fruit and vegetable preparation areas, chicken ovens, and so on for the last eight hours or so. No amount of goodwill toward anyone attending could make it more appealing than a shower and bed. I appreciate how friendly the crowd is, although I suspect it may be something to do with the fresh deck of darts I brought with me. (laughs) I've nervously smoked through most of the pack before someone talks to me any longer than it takes to bum one. They ask what I do for a living. I gesture broadly at my uniform and say, what does it look like? I just came here from pushing trolleys. I light another dart. The person who asked starts speaking to me slower, like they're talking to a child. Another person even has the audacity to say, do you do anything else or something along those lines? They seem less apologetic in asking for more cigarettes because now they know they've got nothing to lose by being a pest to me. I'm used to it. My girlfriend walks past. She says, tell them about your doctorate and teaching. Their demeanor instantly changes and I've got whiplash. Suddenly wide-eyed, they're asking me if I can critique their undergraduate essays. 
You can hear the honorifics stalling on their tongues as they talk at me, trying to exchange socials so they can send me their work to look over. I can't wait to go home. I found that when people ask, what do you do for a living? They're not asking out of interest. It's the litmus test for how much respect they need to afford me. You might think people judge solely of how much money you make, but it's not that simple. Your average plumber easily doubles the income of your average practicing artist, and yet, most of the time, people want to talk to the artist. Social capital is a strange thing, and perhaps it's a hangover from a bygone time when the relationship between education, class and prestige was more straightforward. We all wear different masks in our day-to-day lives, and how people react to you is dependent on theirs. I push trolleys at stores across the region. In the poorest places, people say, thank you for your service. More affluent suburbs, they either don't make eye contact or instead, they look you dead in the eye while they leave the trolley anywhere but the bay. When teaching university students from less affluent suburbs, you find they call you sir or professor, regardless of your academic rank and thank you for your lessons. The more well-to-do kids treat you more like their private tutor and request one-on-one meetings for any reason they see fit. I'm always torn when people ask me what I do for a living, but I know I'd rather say what I do rather than what I am, because I think no matter who you are, you're more than what you do to pay the bills. Another party I was at years before. I'm there with my friend who's an escort. Someone asked what we do. We jokingly reply that we're the customary writer and sex worker muse pairing. The guy comments that he thinks sex workers contribute to society but writers don't. I'm certain he's just trying to pick up my friend through being performative, but I could kiss him in that moment for not picking the easiest route through the customary conversation. Australia is not the classless society it pretends to be. It's stratified in all different directions that aren't as straightforward as the haves and have-nots. We cut down tall poppies but condescend to those beneath. I think rather than asking what people do for a living, we should ask them what they're passionate about, regardless whether they earn an income from it. There's so much more you can learn about a person by asking anything but... What do you do for work? And now we're joined by writer Benjamin Muir, who wrote that story. I'm a writer, an academic and a trolley boy. Welcome, Benjamin. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, Caitlin. Thank you. And I think it is fascinating that you are an academic and work as a trolley boy. Why do you still do that? Is it necessity? There is something that I find weirdly pleasant about doing a job that is fairly menial half the time and one that is sort of very taxing on the brain the other half of the time. It means you're not stuck into sort of one pattern. You can just turn your brain off, push the trolleys, and you tend to actually get good ideas for like writing and stuff. And then you give your brain a rest one day, then give your body a rest the next. And, you know, it's it's not actually, you know, as much as I would love to go full-time in academia, I can't actually complain about 
doing a bunch of jobs casually because the variety actually makes it, you know, quite um, manageable, I think. It's quite a physical job, I imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the store as well a lot as to whether there's a lot of hills, as to whether they incorporate, um, you know, trucks and tractors, as to whether it's just physical. It, it varies the size of the car park, the amount of staff. It, it, it's a huge variation, but it can be. It can be quite... Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I first started, like I could <laughs> I could barely walk, but it's just, you know, the human body adapts. I wouldn't even say I'm particularly fit, but I can push trolleys for a long time and just doesn't upset the body at all. How do your students react to your job? I think the fact that I'm sort of closer to the age of a lot of the students I teach than pretty much any of their other teachers, that already kind of confuses them a little bit. I don't even know how they would uh, take it if they were, if, if one of them, for instance, um, came to the shopping centre I worked and <laughs> saw me driving the trolley truck or anything like that. I, I don't know even how they would process it, but I, I think the students like me, but I also think they find me bizarre to look at already because they're expecting someone sort of much more distinguished looking. Do they get surprised when they see your tattoos and your earrings and things? <laughs> because of COVID, my first lessons were like online. So um, when I started teaching, it didn't really have anything to do with that. But the first time I did do an online class, I just rocked up, just head to toe in lad stuff. Um, and the kids thought, I, like I was, I was covering for my supervisor's classes. The kids thought I was one of them waiting outside the door. Then I like walked in, sat at the projector, and there were some very confused faces. So, what do your fellow worker mates at Coles and Woolies think of? what you do I sometimes think um the boys I work with like you know think I'm uh t- think I'm spinning a furphy when I'm like oh yeah no I'm going to teach university like, I, th- I feel like they're like yeah sh- sure you are bro oh there, there's Benjamin again taking the piss <laughs> <laughs> pretty much like that's kind of how it comes off I read in your on your website you described yourself as a juvenile delinquent <laughs> how did you go from being a juvenile delinquent to an academic of medieval literature. I mean, tell us about that journey. That's got to be juicy. Oh, look, I'm just going to say I was a minor nuisance uh, to the general public. In like, what way? Um, well, when I was, I was quite young, when I was in like my mid-teens, I just kind of really enjoyed vandalism, right. <laughs> if I'm being frank. Um, <laughs> look, I didn't do anything egregious. It was just like a little bit of petty property damage and smoking way too many cones. Like, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Like, that right. was the extent of, um, you know, I was reading, like, Spanion's memoir recently and it really put into perspective that I was really not that bad a kid, I think. <laughs> um, that really put things into perspective for me. So that's that's the extent of it. Minor nuisance, I think. And yeah. so, you know, you were a kid who was trying to figure it out. How hard was it for you to, like, you know, see a way out of that? So, like, even, like, as, like, a minor nuisance, I'd always wanted to be, like, a writer since I was a kid. But I had this absolute, I mean, almost delusion that all you had to do to be a writer was be better than average at writing. You know, I had absolutely no concept of creative industries. I really had this idea that all I needed to do was write a good book. So... I kind of just did what I wanted to. I flunked everything that wasn't like music, art, um, English. I kind of got then, barely got into university at that point. And um, by that time I had picked up like a sort of daily bong habit and 
I was also, I guess, like a minor nuisance in my car as a teenager as well and was just kind of like racking up the traffic fines. I was just kind of like on path to be a massive, like massive loser. I think I've got like a five-page traffic record to this day. So go like go smoke bongs, do handbrake turns, get arrested and then kind of repeat. And this was by the time I was like about 18 and I had an absolute contempt for kind of all things theory related I considered it very sort of you know very pretentious I had this really how you go on um, careers advisor like she meant well but she had like no idea what she was talking about and when I told her I wanted to be a writer she told me I should do a journalism degree but literally the joke is like there was the first introduction to journalism class and then we never saw Ben at uni again right so then like a year later I had just like you know flunked out of that by that time I knew an English degree existed I was like I'm gonna do that I didn't know how to write an essay I kind of had to learn everything over and so I kind of wasted my first two years and in the third year I kind of got a really sobering perspective in the fact like I've spent tens of thousands on this I should really make it work so I started putting all my spare time into university and I went from failing to the dean's merit list within one semester because it was like I would just put so much time into it yeah Tell us a bit about, so you wanted to be a writer from when you were a child. Where did that interest come from? Did you love books? Like, why did you want to be a writer? Personally, I didn't care about reading until I was about seven years old and my sister bought me a copy of the fantasy series that shall not be named. And I loved that as a kid. It was a kind of uh, healthy escapism. You know, like I was was bullied a lot in primary school and it was very nice to kind of be able to sort of imagine that kind of escape from things. And then a couple of years later, I discovered like Edgar Allan Poe. And I don't know, like I always had like a weird proclivity for all things sort of dark and brooding. And I think that was the point where it went from, I have this casual interest in reading to like, I want to be that dude and die poor and misunderstood. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I wonder what it was like for you in your family life. Like, did you have any examples before you of people going to uni or being in the writing world? Or was this just something that was kind of like a dream of yours? My parents were retired creatives. And when I say retired, I'm, I'm going to say like, you know, it's a tough industry, put out to pasture, kind of getting the old yellow treatment kind of creative. So a um, bit of uh, background. My mother had an associate's degree in theatre. My dad finished in year 10, but my mum kind of enjoyed working like backstage in theatre. But because there was kind of no money in that, she ended up working in television, kind of in like production management. And um, my dad was quite good at technical drawing. He ended up going into set design at Channel 7. They both met at the Channel 7 Epping studio, but that studio was eventually liquidated. So by the time I was three years old, mum had taken obviously maternity leave and never gone back. My dad had gotten retrenched. Um, Neither of them ever went back to the industry again, but growing up with it, it seemed like working in a creative space was like totally normalized. I didn't realize until I was an adult that my parents had long been out of that and actually in a way not, I mean, I mean like they, you know, if you know like the show, like A Country Practice, like that was their main sort of production credit, but they were not able to sustainably make a career after a certain amount of time, which should have told me like how tough it was in the creative industry. You grew up kind of with that, but then 
did you also grow up in the Western suburbs and kind of have very little and so not really knowing how to action those dreams that you had? I mean, it got, I think, sustainably worse over the time since my parents had been like they were almost living off savings from when they were in the TV industry and then going into uh, like my dad and my mum became an admin assistant my dad became a bus driver which you know neither of which are particular they should be paid higher but they're not you know so then we were just in very sort of normal then my parents kind of divorced when I was about 11 then I was just raised by my dad on like a bus driver's salary but I would not by any means say that we were like impoverished it was more that I think, um, you know, particularly at the time and particularly in Penrith compared to a lot of the rest of Western Sydney, there wasn't a lot of ways to meaningfully engage with the arts. So the extent of what I knew about stuff was what I could kind of like pick up through the internet. It wasn't until university that I knew that there there had been writers who had been from Western Sydney since Henry Lawson had lived in Parramatta kind yeah. of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't until I was introduced to the university world that I even knew that that was a thing. You know what I mean? I wonder how you would describe your class now. Like, Do you feel like you've shifted classes? Honestly, no. But one of the best things about being a university teacher is after spending, you know, my entire working life, you know, starting at, you know, McDonald's and working in kitchens, pushing trolleys, doing all kinds of odd jobs. The one common thread there is, you know, not getting a ounce of respect in doing any of those. It would be different if I was like a high school teacher, as deserving as they are of respect. You know, the kids do not treat them well, but university students are pretty respectful generally. And it's it's so nice to be taken seriously and not looked down upon for what you sort of do as a job there. So that's the kind of big difference Mm -hmm. there. And I know that, you know, it doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't put food on the table, but it makes you able to not have your spine look like an S-bend while you walk into work. It shouldn't be a privilege to have basic human dignity and respect in the workforce, but, you know, outside of it. And then I go back to three days a week pushing trolleys where – you know, there are exceptions, but a lot of the public treat you like dirt. So. Isn't it interesting that the the jobs that you do, which, you know, people do look down upon, they're the ones that actually support you and support your life and, and how you live and your kind of creative pursuits. It's, I think that's why your piece really resonated because it just kind of examines that hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, probably about half of my income is trolleys about half of it is teaching at this point actually no maybe two-thirds is trolleys and then come to think of it I just realized I pay it's fortnightly on academia so yeah it's about about two-thirds of my actual like surviving money comes from that I think your story resonated so much because all of us know what it's like to go to a party and be kind of have some smarmy person come up to you and ask you that question, what do you do, you know, to kind of assess how important you are? It's such a ridiculous question to ask someone, by the way. We're not defined by that. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it kind of extends beyond the kind of pretensions about uh, profession. A friend of mine once mentioned, um, she went to a party with like a dude I went to school with who was a bit strange. And he asked her like, what's your five-year plan? And I'm like, what kind of a conversation is that? Like, it's one of those things like... We're off the clock. We're at a party. Why do you even want to talk about this? I'd rather talk about literally anything else, really. Yeah, it's such a Sydney conversation, isn't it? And so many people don't want to say the truth about themselves 
or maybe don't pursue things they want to because of what a stranger might say to them at a party. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put it down as a Sydney thing because, I mean, even in that article, a lot of people were commenting apparently the equivalent in Melbourne and Nam is like, where did you go to school? Which is, I guess, a similarly kind of loaded class question. But by the same token, it, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre phenomenon for me. Like, I mean, I, I love a lot of my work, but as I kind of pointed out in the article, no one's asking an earnest question about what you're doing. It's a litmus test, you know, and... I find that not only bizarre, but just so unpleasant on every level. There's also this contradiction because everyone says they're a self-made battler, but also they're not one of those losers pushing trolleys. And everyone wants to tell you that they came from nothing and they worked so hard, but they also don't want to be identified as the kinds of people who actually get their hands dirty. It's a massive contradiction and it's, it's truly bizarre. Thank you for highlighting things that sometimes are shameful and hidden for yeah. people. And I think talking about wealth and class and money, I mean, I was telling Caitlin, try asking someone how much money they make. It's such a taboo question. And so, you know, I think this, these types of conversations are really important because they bring to light things that we really don't talk about. Yeah. And that are not always obvious. Mm using your own life to talk about these big issues helps people connect with it in a way that I think they wouldn't normally. So thank you for that, Ben. And thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thank you. You know, I thought Benjamin's story was so brilliant. Mm. And it's such a reminder to really not make assumptions about people and assume who they are and what they do. And also make sure my trolley goes straight back to that trolley bay. Yes, a good reminder for all of us. And that's it for today's episode. Next episode, we're talking about online dating. Everyone has a bad online dating story, right? So we're going to meet Lu Chi Nguyen to talk about hers. The phrase that set her off during an online chat was, you're such a sweet girl. What was it about the word sweet that got her so incensed? It was more like something that was a bit offending, like and a bit kind of an affront. It's just like, but you think so little of me, like how, yeah. How does that work? Let Me Tell You is produced by Sarah Malik and Caitlin Chang with audio by Jeremy Wilmot and Max Gosford. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Twitch. If you'd like to read more of our stories, head to the SBS Voices website at sbs.com.au forward slash voices.